0: Well, we're continuing in this amazing story of Exodus, and by way of reminder, that's what we're doing every Sunday as we gather. We are a people shaped by the Exodus, a people of the Exodus. We come to retell it and reenact it every Sunday as we sing the songs of God, hear the Word of God, feast on the heavenly drink and the heavenly food, and it's all a gift of His mercy and grace. This is how... In drawing us here, the Lord would create a culture among us that we might be a people who are first and foremost redeemed. Now, recently I was at one of our pastor prayer meetings, and I I love these. It's one of my highlights of the month. On the first Tuesday of the month, a bunch of guys who have basically nothing in common except for Jesus go to the cross of the martyrs, and we pray for all of you people who have almost nothing in common except for Jesus. And we pray that the Lord would move and work here in Santa Fe. And I mean, you've got Presbyterians and Pentecostals. It is a wild time. The price of admission is something that every pastor can agree on. You have to like prayer and food. That's it. No planning a big event. No statement of faith. Just Jesus, prayer, and food. And at this last meeting, one of my buddies, Eric, who pastors a church called The Grove, was talking about creating a healthy culture in your church. And he said something to me that I'm sure you've heard before and that is that really culture is created in a community in three ways first of all it's the stories we tell the stories we tell create culture the heroes we make and lastly the wins that we celebrate the stories we tell the heroes we make the wins that we celebrate well exodus and the whole bible and your life if you are found hidden with Christ in God is a story about God's goodness to rescue his people and to bring them through Red Seas. Exodus 14 is a story about God. He's the hero. He's the one that the people of Israel and in turn us end up celebrating. It's his win for his people to demonstrate his glory and his power in a way that leaves them silent and without response but praise. Praise. Because God's desire is to create for himself a culture among his people, in his church, in his body, a culture of the redeemed. And so before we get to this text, it's got some pretty heavy stuff in it. I just want to start with that joy, that we're not a culture of the accomplished, right? We're not a culture of those who have a lot in common and generally live on this part of town, so this is where we go to church. We're not a culture of, oh man, we really just love the building here. We're a culture of the redeemed. We are the ones who have, in our need, been unable to save ourselves and have been so graciously rescued. And that's why the event of the Red Sea is, according to most scholars, the central event, the crux and climax of the entire Old Testament. It is the big event, the main event of the Old Testament focused here in Exodus chapter 14. It's, it's the heart of the Old Testament. Why? Why is this the climax, the heart, the center? And I think this is extremely important for you and me in our forgetfulness to remember that the Old Testament isn't actually that old and what it's testifying to isn't something apart from Christ. Christ. The Old Testament is testifying to the promised Messiah who will come and fulfill all these signs and symbols. So it's not primarily an Old Testament with an angry God who's different than the New Testament, one that, you know, holds lambs and kisses babies. It's not, it's not about rules and laws and your best life and 12 steps. And it's certainly not. It's certainly not a recounting of, you know, heroic men and women who have lived extremely moral lives. I mean, even Moses strikes the rock and isn't able to enter the promised land. Think of King David. You read First and 2 Samuel. He's got this meteoric rise all the way to the top. It's unbelievable. He's a man after God's own heart. The last years of David's life are, are, are the death and destruction and devastation wrought on by his own sins. God is still faithful, but he's certainly no moral hero for us to follow. And the Old Testament isn't primarily about God's, you know, interest in nation building. As if he is more concerned with, you know, one specific geopolitical ethnic group, Israel, than than he is with all the nations. No, his plan was always given to Abraham in Genesis 15, that he would draw for himself all the people of the world, even the stars in the sky. That's how great the number would be, even people in Santa Fe. That's why the Red Sea is the the heart of the Old Testament, because it's it's a picture of the saving power of God, and that is what God is most about. That is how He is most determined, not desirous, but determined to get His glory in my life and yours, to rescue us, to save us, to bring us through, not just once, but time and time again so that we would know and our friends in Santa Fe would know that salvation belongs not to you not to me not to making my own life not to how much money I have in the bank or the mutual fund not to managing myself and my relationships salvation belongs to the Lord so I got to asking this last week well if it's the heart of the Old Testament is it, is it the heart of my life? you know is it the main thing for me? and there's undoubtedly some conviction that needs to come here. But first and foremost, there was just joy. Joy that the Lord, you know, allowed me to grow up here in the greatest of all states, New Mexico. We're great because we're either at the very top or the very bottom of every list. What's not great about that? The Lord allowed me to grow up in a wonderful, you know, wonderful family, with parents who really loved me and cared about me. I look back on my life and I go, man, God, God saved me. He was faithful. I was baptized as a baby. I didn't know what that meant. You know, there were years we went to church a little bit on and off, and then the Lord continued to just get a hold of me. Continue to bring me in, continue to be faithful, continue to remind me that he loves me, to rescue me, you know, not, not seven times, but seventy times seven. This all came to the fore with a big smile on my face recently as I was hanging out with one of my neighbors, David. He walked down the street, come over to my house to hang out. David comes from a Jewish background, and I love this guy because he wants to talk about all the off-limits things, religion, politics, and, of course, the weather. <laughs> and I'm telling David my story, and, you know, I'm, I'm, there's, no, there's nothing here just but buddies talking. But I just got this smile on my face. Man, this is the heart of my life. Not just once, but ongoing rescue through ongoing Red Seas. God is good. But of course, as I studied this week and asked the Lord Jesus to crucify me in himself that I might be raised to new life in his work, I realized that, you know, I'm no different than the Israelites. I've got a lot of fears too. Fears and frustrations. I know what it is to feel trapped or pinned and pursued. I have my Red Seas, and I bet you do too. I was thinking about the last year and a half just with all the COVID stuff and what it's been like to, you know, live in that and be a, a pastor in that and try to grow in that. And I, I'll confess to you that I think in some ways it's been, for me, a Red Sea. Not not so much because of, you know, all, all the medical stuff going on. I and mean, thank God for modern science. But man, just the, the constant pivoting and The preferences and the, you know, on any given week, getting 10 articles from two different scientists that swear that their deal is right and it's just opposite sides of the coin and it's all over my head and it's just made you feel tired and helpless. And I think for me, it's even, and this is kind of a new thing, even welled up a little bit of anxiety. I mean, we're living in a moment of societal anxiety right now. Just go to the grocery store. Why are people so mad? Uh, there's probably a few of you here who have really struggled with anxiety, and so I don't mean to put it on that level at all, but it's kind of a new thing. I'm like, where does this come from? Why do I feel a tightness in my chest? What is happening here? And just like Israel, pinned, trapped, pursued on the edge of a Red Sea, I can do nothing about with the army bearing down, my tendency, too, is to grumble. Grumble. I actually think that's the point. I think the point is that God wants to bring us to the end of ourselves. Because we are, we are so blind about the fact that that's actually where we already exist anyway, at the end of ourselves, completely in need of his mercy and grace to save. That it's, it's God's mercy to, to bring us to these places where we say, all right, okay, help. <laughs> I can't do it. Would you help me? I'm not the Christ. I can't save myself. I can't save others. I can't save these relationships that I'm you know, struggling in and frustrating other people. Help. And if Exodus 14 teaches us anything, it's that it's here. It's here. It's in, it's in these places where we see most clearly that God has a plan. He knows what he's... Not when everything's good. Not when you're on the mountaintop. Not when you're really confident about how good your faith is and you know, you're, just, you're killing it. You're the best Christian there was. Definitely better than that guy over there. Take a look, you know. No. It's in these places that we see God has a plan. It's before the Red Sea where the Lord does the work of the waters that we see that it's God who triumphs over evil and injustice and that he rescues his children graciously, graciously, as John said, abundant grace. And so that's what I want to look at in our text this morning, just these three things. God has a plan for us. The Red Sea proves that. And God triumphs over evil and injustice. The Red, St- Red Sea is a demonstration of that. And lastly, that God rescues his children graciously again. And of course, in that we see, we see the goodness of Jesus So first, I want us to notice that God has a plan for us. All throughout this text, there are cues. Cues in the narrative that God knows exactly what he's doing. Exodus 14 is emphatic. There's no mincing of words, and no well-respecting Jew would have had any problem believing it. God is sovereign. He's not a little God deity. You know, it's not Marduk and Baal getting in the boxing ring to fight each other and see who gets the Olympic gold. In fact, the Hebrew creation story is so unique. There are no other gods. It's just him. He's the only one who speaks existence into being by the power of his word. And in God's sovereignty, we're told that his goal is to maximize his glory, that the earth would know that he is the Lord. We should think about this when we pray as we do every Sunday. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's a scary prayer you're praying. You're crazy, people. You're crazy. Unless God is real and unless he's sovereign, you may not just be crazy, you may be dumb. It's like praying, Lord, give me humility. All right, buckle up your seatbelt. Is that really what you want? God, glorify your name. You think God's desire is to glorify his name in you by giving you an easy life where you just lean into all your strengths? No, that's your version of it because that's what gives you and me glory. God's glory comes when we're brought low, when we are revealed to be who we really are, which is weak and in need of his help. And he makes his power perfect through our weakness because his grace is sufficient for all the Red Seas that we'll face. God is sovereign. He's working a plan. And and that's why we see this strange tale of events. I mean, don't miss this, that it's actually God in verse 2. It's God who tells Israel to turn back. And at this point, they're like, okay. It's God who says, turn around, stop here at the sea, camp out. And you can just imagine all all the Israelites, right? Yes, God's on my side, things are going good. That seems like a decent place to camp. Oh, Lord, we trust you. You know what you're doing. Sure, we'll just stay here, no big deal. Wake up in the morning pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, we'll get well on our way, the Lord will continue to lead us. And so we see their faith in verse 4. It says, and they did so. But God knows it's about to get hard. (laughs) God knows that he is the one who has them locked in by this geography. God knows he is the one who by Pharaoh's evil and Pharaoh's choice to be evil, God has allowed his heart to be hardened. He's hearted it And Pharaoh's on his way, pursuing with the full might of the Egyptian army. And so the question is, not on the mountaintops when we're like, oh Lord, thank you for giving us this awesome meadow to camp in. But when we see the army over the hill, will we be those who trust that God is working it wisely? Even in ways that we cannot see. One commentator this week put it this way. The Israelites are not there by accident. And we would do well to remember that neither are we. They are not there by accident, for it is the Lord who had them turn around. He brought them there. Indeed, he allowed Egypt to pursue them. So when they say to Moses, it would have been better if we had died in Egypt. They are looking at their circumstances instead of looking to the Lord himself who brought them to this place. And yet we all do that. We look at our circumstances when the going gets tough. And that's why it's so important that not only is God sovereign for us in his plan, but he's also a warrior. I want to just marvel at what the Lord says to these folks as they see the Egyptian army on the hill and are shaking in their boots. He doesn't say, okay, now's the time you're a bunch of folks who just got freed from slavery in Egypt, you know, pick up your sticks and your spoons and let's go fight the Egyptians. He says, stop. Stay still. Be still and know that I am the Lord. I will fight for you. In the ancient Near East, kings were often seen as warriors and conferred with divine rights as such. If a king went out to battle and won the battle, It would often be viewed as a blessing from the gods or perhaps a confirmation of that king's divinity. But never did the king go out to battle and tell his people and his warriors to do nothing but remain silent. Again, God wants to make this black and white, no gray area, no room for misunderstanding. He is the one who fights. They are totally helpless. They can't do anything. And so here in Exodus, where we see the, the redeeming power of God at the heart of the Old Testament, we're reminded about how different this salvation is from all the, the optional religions which bubble up around us. Because the nature of religion is never do nothing, be silent. It's always work harder and build a bridge. Scramble, Israel. Do everything you can to like dig a, dig a trench and you know... We know that's not true, but functionally we live that way so often. That even if we're very spiritual, believing God will do 99% of the work, there's still kind of that 1% you need to do. Try a little harder, work a bit more, earn his favor. Because, I mean, let's be honest. He's going to bring you out of Egypt. He'll help you in the wilderness. But now that you're at your 15th Red Sea, I mean, he's getting a little impatient with you. And so right here in the middle of this story... The Lord reminds Israel, no, this isn't a religion. I didn't rescue you into rules. I have rescued you into relationship, and the nature of that relationship is I'm the king, I'm the warrior, and I will do it. So, how does Israel react? As usual, full of faith and trust. As usual, without any qualms or grumbling. Because they're not human, you know, they're Israel. No, they're full of fear. And I want to take a moment here and just acknowledge that because this is really scary. What's happening to Israel in this moment is objectively extremely scary. This is like a Tiananmen Square sort of a moment, right? Israel with their little briefcases standing in front of tanks. At this point in time, Egypt is the world's military superpower. Nobody spends more on military spending than Egypt right now. And these chariots are no joke. Three guys, the one in the center drives, two on each side, swords, spears, drive right past you, slice you in half, and lop off your head. And this is what Israel sees bearing down upon them. So fear is real. It's a big theme for them. It is for us too. Even as we know God has a plan for us, wouldn't we like to know God's plan for us? We want to know the plan. We want to know it now. We want to help in fixing it. We're found right here. But God says he will fight. And so a question is begged of both Israel and us this morning. When you come to a Red Sea in your life, when you see the army on the hill, and by the way, We all struggle with this, so thank you, Lord, for your grace. But do we interpret pain and challenge and Red Seas in the plan as as God's working? As God's setting up to demonstrate his sovereignty? Or do we interpret it as abandonment? Well, I thought Jesus loved me, and I thought he was with me, and I thought he was going to help me, but now I can obviously see that's not the case because I'm pinned into the Red Sea and the army's on the hill. Do we interpret the pain in the plan as God's good working for he has promised to never abandon us? Or God must be asleep at the wheel. I better try harder. It's here that John chapter 16 is such an encouragement when Jesus says to his fear-filled disciples on that last night, he says, look, in this world, you're going to face a lot of trouble, but take heart. Take heart. Trust me. Know me. You know me. Take heart. What does Jesus say? I have overcome the world. And at the Red Sea, we see exactly that, that God triumphs over evil. He triumphs over the world, the flesh, and the devil. He triumphs over injustice. And in the Red Sea and in Christ, our promise is that he will never ultimately allow avengers to overtake you. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, the stuff that we all struggle with, Coming out of COVID, relationships, all the things that you feel is uniquely you, and that's the devil's work to make us feel so alone in those things. Paul says, no, look, no no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. God is faithful. God triumphs over evil. He will provide a way out. His hand is strong enough to save. Now, we see God's justice first and foremost over Pharaoh, Pharaoh, this grievous evil, Pharaoh's a hyperbole, he's a joke. Pharaoh is so wicked that now he's the avenger, the revenger, the liar, and it all just seems not fair. But yet God said he'd make a way. So how? And this is where we get to the water. What is happening in the water? And this will be very important in a minute when we get to the Lord's Supper. What's happening in the water is God is making a promise, Just as the Lord had already instructed Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and the like to take an animal and cut a covenant, to make a contract, to walk through that by faith. Do this and you will live. Do it not and you will die. God is doing the same thing with the Red Sea. He is, as it were, cutting a covenant in the middle of the waters to show Israel and the army of Egypt that those who walk through by faith will walk through on dry land. But those who walk through by themselves in their own strength will end up being crushed for there's no way they can be righteous enough to get through. In the Red Sea, which is a covenant, we're told it's fulfilled in baptism, we see that God baptizes those who come faithlessly and foolishly, Pharaoh, in the waters of judgment for their evil. And yet, even little babies can be brought through, not waters of judgment, but waters of grace, when they come with simple trust, even the trust of a child. You see, here, here we find that all of our righteousness is rags. It's not enough to save. That's why Paul tells us in Galatians, the law kills. And if you, if you try to do it, if you try to make your, there's no other way to get through the waters of our injustice but to let the Lord do it and bring us through by his hand. So we see Pharaoh judged, God triumphing over evil. Pharaoh is scary, but he's been taken care of. And yet in this text, I think there's something perhaps even scarier. And of course, that's that Israel is here too. And their fear has done so often what fear tends to do. Their fear has become unbelief. Their unbelief has led to verbal complaints against God. And I just, again, to pause here and consider the audacity of what they say to Moses and to the Lord. And there's not going to be much help for you here if you can't see yourself here. Right? If you don't understand that during Jesus' day, you probably wouldn't have been, you know, the Apostle John, the one that Jesus loved, who stayed with him. You probably would have been a Pharisee, like me, Or at very least, you would have been one of the ones in the crowd screaming, Crucify! Get rid of this guy. He doesn't make any sense. He's not the king we expected. He's not Jewish Braveheart. He didn't come to overthrow the Romans. Get rid of this guy. Crucify him. Out of here. No more. So when Israel says to the Lord, Did you really bring us out of Egypt and slavery so that we could just die out here in the wilderness? Can you imagine the audacity of that? After the lamb and the blood and the deliverance and the going out and the plunder of the Egyptians and the repeated signs to remind them, they get into one tough situation with their back against the wall and it's all for nothing. We are meant to see this as the readers and not only see ourselves but be shocked at our own unbelief and unrighteousness. I mean, come on. Israelites, really? Reminds me of a time a few years ago, I went to Disneyland, and we went with, you know, my parents and our kids, and had a great time, and, you know, we kind of, you do that thing where you're like, what age do you take the kids to Disneyland? Because when they're super little, you know it's going to be a dumpster fire of, you know, heat stroke stroller pushing, so you're trying to find that perfect window where they still think it's all real and amazing, but they can handle it. Well, we get through the gates, and all of a sudden I turn, and I see, I see the very thing that had prevented us from taking our kids when they were too young. There's a little boy, screaming and crying, stiff-necked, arms down at his sides, and just looking up at his mom and dad, screaming, I hate Disneyland. (laughs) And you're like, bro, it is 10 a.m. You have got a day in front of you. This is how the Israelites are right now. 20 minutes ago, they were in the parking lot. Sure, Lord, we'll turn around. What a great meadow. We'd love to camp here. Now they're screaming at the top of their lungs, how dare you bring us out into the middle of nowhere that we could just die here? We want to be back in Egypt. When we're backed against the wall, when we're cornered, our true emotions come out. I've seen this in my own life plenty of times when I'm tired, when I'm anxious, when I'm, you know, whatever, all my stuff comes out. One commentator said this, said, you know, our emotions don't actually tell us the truth about the world, but they tell us the truth about ourselves. They tell us the truth about who we really are, what we really believe. Not objectively about what's true. God is sovereign. He's about to do it. So often we're found saying things like, she makes me angry. He makes me so mad. No. No. The truth is actually that you are a deeply angry person who hasn't dealt with your anger. And so when you're backed up against the wall, you lose self-control, and who you really are most deeply, apart from God's grace, comes out in full form. Ouch. In that way, emotions, our feelings, their fear, are like lights on the dashboard. When something is going wrong, the light, the light alerts you, but we don't start yelling and jumping up and down and blaming the light. Because the light is only pointing to something that is a much deeper issue. That is, the heart needs help. So here's my point. God triumphs over evil, and we expect him to triumph over Pharaoh. Obviously, he's a caricature of evil. But God also triumphs over the injustice that is just two or three layers of pulling back the onion inside all of us when we're cornered, trapped, and pinned. And I want you to notice what the Lord does. God does not destroy or abandon his people. I mean, how could they complain after all they've seen? For goodness sake, for all we've seen, God does not abandon or destroy. Because guess what? These doubters, they're his doubters. These who are full of fear and care, these are His children that He has promised to bring through. Those who complain and grumble, it may indeed rob them of their joy, but in no way does it preclude their drowning. And so back to Disneyland, I remember just turning over and seeing a picture of the Father's heart. This guy gets down on his knee with you know, miraculous patience. Some of you who are grandparents have miraculous patience. I don't understand it, but I want to someday. And he doesn't lecture the kid. He doesn't yell at him. He doesn't do all the things that he might have been tempted to do. Instead, he just holds him. And guess what? It took a couple seconds. It wasn't instant. Like, oh, he stopped crying and then said, thank you, Father. May I push the stroller? No. He kept crying for a few minutes. But, but the crying was eventually overwhelmed by, by the nearness of the embrace. That's what God is doing here. That's God's triumph and justice over the brokenness and the evil in our own hearts. Why? Because God is the Lord, He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is no other God like Him, and I dare you to look. Because God rescues His children graciously. His goal is glory. That's right. To glorify and magnify his name on earth. But how? The how is by grace. The how is by doing something that would make all the Israelites go, it had to be him. It had to be him and it has to be love because what else could it be? And this is the message not only of Exodus, but Genesis to Revelation. From A to Z, grace all the way down, all the way through. Not just at the beginning when you came to Jesus, but as you walk with Jesus like a child, stumble, fall, rise up again, the Father has you in His hand. This is grace. So we can't make it abstract. The other thing we can't do, which I think we're often guilty of sometimes in our tradition, is to be reductionistic about it. Kyle Strobel tells a, a great story. I just had to steal this from him. He, he talks about so often, when we talk about grace, we, we neglect to really discuss the full benefits of it. It'd be like you going to someone's house who just had Christmas. You walk in, there's presents everywhere, the kids run up to you. You know, you wait. First question, what did you get for Christmas. We got gifts. Oh, great, what did you get? They were free. (laughs) Awesome. What did you actually get? We didn't have to earn them. I know, what did you actually get? It was by no work or merit of our own, a free gift. I mean, that would just be absurd. But yet in the same way, we often do this with our understanding of God's grace. We are quick to reduce it to forgiveness back then when you prayed the prayer, and now, by the way, you better bootstrap yourself and make sure God still loves you. No. The Exodus story, and especially the Red Sea, reminds us That grace is full of benefits, not at one point, but for your entire life. And not just one benefit, forgiveness, but also God's love, His mercy, His power, His strength, His Spirit, His righteousness, His care, His concern, His help. The Spirit is an advocate and a counselor. All these things are ours. All the riches of Jesus are ours in grace. I mean, who doesn't want that? So we come finally to the question of, okay, then who is saved? Who is saved in the sea? Because surely all would want these benefits, but are are grumblers allowed to pass through? Are people allowed to pass through if they don't understand what I just said or they don't get it or they're still a, a mix of truth and error, hope and doubt? You can almost imagine as the Israelites walk through those two huge walls of water. It's kind of like the church. I guarantee there were some people up front, probably a little Bible study going. You know, they're quoting some scripture. They got tambourines. They're singing, not a doubt in their minds. Happy, faithful, you know, maybe even looking behind them to see why everybody else isn't doing as good as they are a few times. Then halfway back, you know, undoubtedly, you have some of the philosophers and the scientists, you know, I don't know, is this wall going to hold? I mean, how many tons of water? Square, da, 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 da. You know, they're doing all that. You've got people in the backpack who are just like, I don't know. This is really scary. Egypt's coming. We're here. You've got kids who don't even really know what's going on. They're playing a soccer game in the middle of the Red Sea on dry ground. You have those who are just drawn to utter silence and awe because they know what they're seeing but they have no idea what they're seeing. And they're full of hope and fear at once. Who is saved? All are saved. The young The old, those with great faith, those with weak faith, those who understand it all, those who are struggling to understand, those who are secure, those with fear, all are saved because it is God who rescues his children graciously. Graciously, we're told in Ephesians, so that no one can boast except in Christ. And this, of course, is for us a picture of what Jesus has done. It's all pointing to Jesus. Jesus himself who would be torn as a covenant promise. Jesus who would be crushed by God's injustice so that we could stand before him perfectly just and justified. Jesus who would bring through both the confident and the fearful. Jesus who would fulfill the words of Deuteronomy 131. There you saw the Lord God who carried you Carried you as a father carries his son, all the way you went until you reached this place. He carried. He carried you like a father. He carried you all the way. He carried you until you reached the place that he had designed for you to go. I mean, doesn't that sound like a God that you wouldn't have to, but would want to trust? So when we're fearful, when we're trapped, when we're pinned. That's, this is our culture. This is what God is shaping us into week after week through songs and prayers and the Word and the Supper. Those who have been rescued and redeemed that we might know that Jesus, even amidst our many red seas, will never fail to bring us through. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us in Exodus 14. We are, we are so here <laughs> We are here in the frustration of Pharaoh in some ways. We hate to admit it. We're certainly here with Israel, who's now come to this place where they're, they're wondering, hey, Lord, are you, re- are you still there? Are you still going to help? Are you still going to do what you promised? And so, Lord, you bring us to this table every week to remind us of just that. That even in our Red Seas, whatever they are, in our fear and unbelief, in our anxiety and our need. Every week you bring us here where Jesus is torn in two that we might walk through by faith on the dry ground of his promises. He is the solid rock and everything else is sinking sand. So Lord, I pray you would meet us here now by faith. Help us to believe and trust. Thank you that you will bring us through.